You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everybody, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. We're glad to be back. Um, back? To, we're in a new place. Well, yeah, I say back, <laughs> but we're, yeah, we're back on the uh, podcast, but we are in the new studio in the new house. Um, same, relatively same part of town. <laughs> um, not a far move, but... Far enough. Far enough, <laughs> and so... Because that's how we spent our last weekend. <laughs> yeah, last weekend, yeah, you definitely uh, were a big help. Uh, we loaded, we had... Back-to-back house, I don't know how much people know about this. We had back-to-back house closing, so we were out of one place in one day and into the next place the same day. So the day before, we packed up everything into a 26-foot truck. Which we filled. Which Emily and I filled. (laughs) We did everything uh, except for the piano, basically, and the TV, which I had a friend help with. Bless him, bless him, bless uh, him. (laughs) Thank you, Danny, if you're listening. We really appreciate it. Um, And... Moved to a new place. It was a, it was a long weekend, but it was a good weekend. I'm just glad it's behind us. <laughs> I am too. Um, our new backyard is beautiful. Love it. Uh, it has a. It's not very big, but it backs right up to a little community lake. It's so. like that's where you find me. Like when I'm over now, it's like forget the living room, the kitchen. <laughs> just just let me stay out there. No, it looks really nice, and actually, in the evenings, you get a little cool breeze off of it, so you're not just sweltering like you are in most of uh, this part of Oklahoma during any part of the day. And the kids love the ducks and the squirrels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have an osprey, too. <laughs> yeah, cool. got to see him yesterday. Yeah, so. um, last night, after you left, I saw him flying by with a fish that was about like 8 to 10 inches long. Oh, that's cool. It was pretty cool. I missed that. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> lots, of, lots of good stuff going on here. And, and the Kamado Joe did come with us. Yes, so. yep, yep, yep. yep. We got the, got the grill moved without breaking it. So <laughs> that, was, that was one of the things I was nervous about because it it's ceramic, so... Yeah, well, we had to save that because, you know, hopefully at some point we're going to be able to have our listeners back in to have dinner with us and enjoy. So Absolutely. And I managed to have enough time yesterday, uh, not only to get the studio set up, but to get the desk uh, crew back out. You got got the decorations here. So got to have the support there. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, that's uh, I know that's not why everyone tunes in. So, you know. We'll, we'll put where we actually start in the show notes, maybe. <laughs> so, but anyway, uh, when we last left, um, Saul was pursuing David, mm-hmm. which we are seeing a lot of that. Yeah, um, well, that's pretty much the rest of First Samuel. And we're gonna, yeah, and we're going to see a lot of that. But this time, uh, while in pursuit, the people call Saul because um, they're Philistines, so they better call Saul. I don't know. That's the. <laughs> it's a show, right? Yes, that was oh, okay. that was my so, bad attempt at humor. <laughs> yeah. um, we'll pray for you. <laughs> yeah, I hope, I hope so. No, that, that's exactly what happened. And so we're opening up with chapter 24 and, you know, Saul has supposedly gone to chase after these Philistines. We don't know if he catches them. We don't know if there's any kind of encounter or if this unnamed messenger, and we've talked about the significance of those before, mm-hmm. uh, was just God getting Saul, you know, away from David to be able to protect him. And so when we open up with verse 1 of 24, we're told, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, and notice the word following there, there doesn't seem to be any indication of some kind of a, you know, encounter. Right. And, and I, my guess is that we're not getting a whole lot of uh, detail on that, mainly just because it's Saul, not. Saul's not the focus of the story anymore. Precisely. It's not important. And so the, the Bible writers just basically say, Here, here's what you need to know. And whatever Saul accomplishes as a king at this point really doesn't have any great significance. It's not going to have any lasting value. So why bother with telling his story uh, any more than we already have? Really, and when you go through this, you begin to realize that Saul's story is really just included to give you that great contrast between who he was as a king and who David is as a king. And that really shines mm-hmm. when we get to Abigail, when uh, she begins talking to David. I am so thrilled to get to that story. Yeah. Uh, so well, uh, I'm curious to see what happens. Yeah, we aren't there yet, but I've already done a lot of research for it and I, I can't wait to share it. So 
But anyway, verse one, uh, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. So um, we're not told who tells Saul of David's location. Uh, we, we can kind of assume based on the previous chapter that it was the, the Zephites, but we, we aren't given any great detail about it. Now, the wilderness of Engedi. Uh, so I hear it. And I hear Anne Getty. <laughs> Babies with flowers. <laughs> so it's like the wilderness, like you're walking through uh, this hillside and there's all these babies. And, and flowers. <laughs> it's, which I think might be, you know, more disturbing than the actual location. <laughs> okay, so now I'm thinking of the Call of Midwife episode that I just saw recently where they made a baby garden, but which was made of babies. Uh, which sounds way more disturbing when I describe it than that. Than... They weren't planted in the ground, right? <laughs> no, no, okay, no. Okay, well, so... <laughs> then, that's probably good. So but Now but... that you get to see our dark sense of humor and warped thinking. <laughs> well, see, now the baby's planted in the ground is where I see David at right now. So let's, uh, maybe we... We should move us, on. <laughs> maybe you should tell us what the place is actually like if you know anything about it. A little bit. It's, uh, it's to the west of the Dead Sea. Uh, in Joshua fifteen sixty two, we know that it's near someplace called the City of Salt. So, you know, this is kind of a rugged salt mm-hmm. desert. Um, in the Song of Songs, uh, verses uh, one, uh, chapter 1, verse 14, the Shulamite praises her lover for being like a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of En Gedi. So this is a place where, where grapes are grown. And... Ezekiel 47.10 says the water flowing from the third temple would turn the rivers of water into fresh, but not the waters of the swamps, so that the swamps still had that salt content. So, you know, this made me really curious, and it's kind of a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I thought it was interesting that you would want to grow grapes where there is salt. So evidently, there's a couple of different varieties of grapes. Some of them will accumulate the salt into the plant. And it actually will make the, the grapes bitter. It doesn't make for good wine. Other varieties don't. And a little bit of salt actually improves the flavor of the wine. So you get a, a more robust uh, taste there where you get the salt and the sweet playing off of each huh. other. Yeah. And actually, one of the top-ranked wines in Israel today is grown in this area. It's called Yatir. And it's made from grapes grown near the Dead Sea. And I actually, okay, so I was going to, like I called actually liquor stores in the Norman area to see if they carried this. Right. Nobody did. Cause I thought it'd be really cool to have a bottle and just to, to check it out. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. I, but can they order it? I, I'm thinking they probably can. So we'll, we'll have to do some checking. Cause I, for me, food is part of experiencing the culture. It's part of experiencing a different part of the world. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and since you can't travel right now, might as well. You bring eat the it food. in. You bring it to you, and so um, yeah, you bring it to you. And I'm like, why, why not just have that little bit of history? And to sure. think that it goes all the way back to the days of David, and that uh, to me, that's cool. But Engedi actually means spring of the kid, like as in a small goat. And uh, it, it was a natural oasis. There's lots of springs, and it has lots of caves, and it, it lends itself to kind of forming these natural. Um, pens for and corrals for for livestock, and this is the reason why we've got this perfect setup for what's getting ready to happen. And, and in verse two, we find out that Saul takes three thousand men to to search for David. And you know, at this point, David's got six hundred men who are with him. They they've scattered after the battle of Keilah, and Saul is searching near a place called Wild Goats Rock. And you know, when you think of the numbers, Saul's bringing. 3,000 men to confront David's 600 men. He's literally got five times the fighting force uh, of David. And so that tells you how afraid uh, Saul is, what he thinks of David's um, Mm -hmm. military prowess, so to speak. And it's chosen men. These are the best of the best of Saul's warriors. This is not just the, the general standing army. This is the top tier. So that also tells you how big of an army Saul has amassed during this time. Right. So pretty good size fighting contingent for Saul. And this is a setup. Now, the only way you're going to realize it's a setup is if you know what happened before. And this is where we go back to. You've got to keep reading your Bible and reading your Bible. And when you see numbers, 
Remember, numbers have a symbolic significance within the Bible. So mm-hmm. you, you want to look at how that number is used in different places within the Bible. I mean, I'm not talking about gematria here or any kind of mystical reading. I'm talking about just specifically looking at how the number is used in previous stories. So in Exodus 32:28, we find that after the incident of the golden calf, that the Levites killed 3,000 men. Right. In Joshua 7, verses 3 and 4, we find that it's 3,000 men who go up against the city of Ai, and you'll remember that from the story of Achan, and um, mm-hmm. we didn't go over it, but it's, it's a great story. Judges 15, 11, it's 3,000 men of Judah who confront Samson for upsetting the, the status quo with the Philistines, which we talked about the implications of that. Right. Judges 16, 27, 3,000 were killed when Samson destroyed the temple of Dagon. So when we see 3,000 men in any kind of confrontation or battle, we should automatically be prepared for disaster. This is not going to work out well. Okay. So... I was expecting you to say not the way he planned. Well, was... the way he planned, the way he hoped, anticipated, a lot less synonyms we could throw in there. But yeah, it, but normally it's going to, to end in disaster for, sure. for whoever has the troop of 3,000. Now, the name of the rocks is also a tip-off. I mean, it's... it's the the rock of the young kid, which in Hebrew that's Yael, or as we would say it in in English, it's Jael. Okay. So now all of a sudden we know that if you're a leader of an opposing force, there's there might be something not so good in your future. And the writer of Samuel is from here on out. I, I've noticed he gets better as he writes. Sure. And you can tell that when he starts pulling these things in and he starts giving like these massive clues of what's going to happen. If you look at specific names, if you look at specific phrases, and he's going to keep tying you back to Genesis, he's going to keep tying you back to Judges. And he really gets a feel for what he can foreshadow with his language. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're really stepping into that part of Samuel that's going to, to remind us, hey, there is a history that we're, that's being built on. And great things are going to be revealed. So verse three, this is talking of Saul. It says, he came to the shepherds by the way, and there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. So, you know, like I said, natural corrals and pens for the, for the sheep. You'd have um, caves nearby for the shepherds to, Mm -hmm. to, to take shelter in. And you know, this is really. Then you'd have some set aside for other duties. Yeah, and <laughs> so you, to speak, ex- exactly. I like your little pun there. I noticed it. So, <laughs> but he he goes in uh, the ESV very politely says to relieve himself, but the Hebrew is literally to cover his feet. Mm-hmm. So not only do we know that he's relieving himself, we know exactly how. And in case you haven't caught on, he's pooping. It's number two. Number two. So we should give a shout out to Luke here. <laughs> yes. Uh, have, you, have you read any of... I was a beta reader. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've read the whole thing. Uh, yeah. Luke T. Harrington, his, uh, his book, uh, Murder Bearers, Moonshine and Mayhem. What, I can't remember the subtitle on it. I don't remember the subtitle. Sorry, but, Luke. But yeah, sorry, Luke. I don't have that memorized. But uh, Murder Bears is what sticks with murder you. Murder Bears. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's basically uh, him kind of exploring some of the... Actually, it's kind of the idea of what started this podcast is just exploring <laughs> the funny parts of the Bible and the weird parts. A and lot of scatological humor in the Bible. Yes, the the first uh, the first chapter covers a lot of pooping, <laughs> uh, a lot of biblical pooping. Yes, so. and you know, and those are the things we don't talk about in church because you don't talk about those things in polite society. I, I did. I now I did learn that this verse was talking about in Sunday school. I did learn that, that this wow. was about pooping, yeah. Yeah, well, and, and it's important because it's a time frame. It, I think it was Lorena who did that lesson, Shout out to Lorena. I know, so, yeah, so we'll have to let her know that we're talking about her, uh, <laughs> about I'm, her and poop. <laughs> well, I mean, I, but no, I, I, I'm not, I, I, for some reason that sticks out in my mind, but the, the I'm saying she did a good job better than uh, some other Sunday school teachers and, I wouldn't expect and a lot less. of her research, you know. Yeah, so. I wouldn't expect less from her. She she's great. We we love her. And but it, it is an important detail. I and mean, even as much as we might go, oh no, that's kind of indecent or improper to talk about. The reason why it's an important detail is 
there has to be enough time for things to happen as we go through the, the rest of the chapter. And so you aren't going to get that unless that's what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Now, the rabbis uh, made a lot of this because the fact that he, he covered his feet, he was being very modest, he was being righteous and proper, and that he was uh, not revealing more of himself than absolutely necessary. This is the proper way to do this. And yes, there are rules in the Talmud about the proper way to address all bodily functions. And this is one, and I won't go into some of the details because it might get embarrassing. Well, that, that reminds me, um, I don't know if you have any notes on this, but it seems like something you would throw in. And if you didn't, <laughs> I'm going to just because it's funny. There is a, I'll have to link to it. There's a, there's a Hebrew bathroom blessing. Uh-huh. And, um, I did not go there, but yeah. <laughs> but it, it basically, the, the short version is um, blessed is the, is Blessed is the Holy One, you know, uh, who designed man with many openings that should one of them be unduly clo- or, uh, unduly closed, he would not be able to function, nor if it was improperly opened, he would not be able to function. And basically, it's a blessing saying, hope everything goes the way it should, you know? Uh, <laughs> everything works out in the end. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think it's pretty funny. Um, well, and there's a whole debate about whether or not you should pray in the bathroom. And uh, that's also recorded because... Well, that's not surprising to me because I, <laughs> I, had, okay, I had a friend who was a youth pastor and he would, and he took his Bible to work and whenever he would go, if he'd ever have to go, he'd just take it with him in the bathroom and read for a minute. And he told someone else about this and they were like, I don't think like like another person like got onto him like saying that that was disrespectful to read the Bible while on the toilet. Um, oh wow! So uh, this episode just <laughs> is everywhere, guys. It's, it's an oddity episode. <laughs> I think we're just delirious after all of the hard work of last yes, week, and yeah. then this week has been crazy too. All so. A little bit tired, so. yeah. And but, so. <laughs> yeah, we we get a little loopy sometimes, but yeah, so. Uh, murder bears go check that out it's pretty good um i've I've about a chapter and a half in yeah it it is and it's all the crazy stuff about the bible that that gets overlooked so often and just put into one book and so and of course it's it's written with luke's kind of sense of humor that he's got and 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 if you read it definitely read the footnotes yes definitely so and anyhow okay i'm like trying to get myself back get it it, it together (laughs) Get it together. Don't say that. Um, Stay on target. So (laughs) David, the rabbi said that it was because Saul, yes, I like had totally closed my eyes there to like focus, um, said that because Saul had acted so righteously that this is why David felt compelled to spare him. I don't know. Uh, You know, the rabbis, I love them. I love the fact that they're willing to hash through all the little tiny details and give everything its due attention. But and some, then some. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes, you know, they kind of, uh, kind of reach. But I think David kind of explains why he doesn't in the text. Maybe we can just take David's word for it. Well, yeah, exactly. So we're going to, we'll examine that. But one thing to note, that anytime the Bible does bring up the subject of poop. Um, oh, we're still there. We're still there. <laughs> Aside from the commands about, you know, what to do with it in, in camp, because there were very strict rules. So you, yeah, you go outside. Out, go outside the camp, dig a hole, bury it. And this, you know, if you study ancient history, you'll find that not all cultures adhered to that. Right. And so this was kind of almost cutting edge technology and hygiene practices for the Jewish people. But um, it's almost always connected with judgment against God's enemy when we start bringing up this this language. And, you know, mm-hmm. of course, you can see that particularly at Mount Carmel with Elijah and the, the, the priest of Baal. Can't wait to get to that story. But that's, we, a, that's a good one. Yeah. But it also connects us again back to Judges, uh, Judges 3, 12 through 30 with Ehud. So we've got. And also with murder bears. And also with murder bears. Uh, not quite the same standing. Love you, Luke. But, uh, you know, it's still, it's still that connection. So we've got, we've, we've got the 3,000 men that were disastrous, disastrous numbers in the book of Judges. We have Yael brought back, which was disastrous, as to Sisera in the book of Judges. Mm-hmm. And now we've got this reference back to Ehud. So now we are set, we're primed. This is going to be a disaster. 
we know this because the writer has set us up for it. We should know the story of Judges, which is why I recommend if you're just starting to join us right now, go back and listen Mm -hmm. to the series on Judges because it keeps coming up again over and over in Samuel. Yeah, and yeah, if you if you don't feel like going all the way back, at least hit Judges. I think that's one of yeah, it's one of my favorite series on well, the Book of Judges, which there aren't <laughs> many, but it's one of my favorite like just podcast study series. I mean, and, and not mm-hmm. I know I'm probably not the most by unbiased source, <laughs> but I enjoyed it. I learned so much, and but you know this really sets us up for the question, and this is a huge question: Is David going to be a king, or is he going to be a judge? Because if he's going to be a judge, Samuel, I mean, sorry, Saul is dead. Mm-hmm. And so, but how does a king behave? Because if he's a king like Saul, Saul is dead. So who is David going to be? And this is the question that the reader is supposed to be asking themselves as, as they go through this. And why is David remembered as such a great king? Because even ancient readers would have known who David was by the time they got this book. So they would have... Mm. That, that reputation and that image in their mind. So they, they knew he was a great king, but how does he confront these things? And what makes him different from a judge? What makes him different than Saul? And why is it important? So in verse four, we find out that David and his men are, are in the most innermost part of the cave. So evidently this cave like extended way back. And this is probably why Saul didn't you know, clear the cave before he, he went in. But also, it's got to be fairly removed because David and his men have this entire conversation that Saul's not hearing. So Right. I, and if you've ever been in a cave, you know, sound tends to travel. Yeah, yeah. So the, Although, the, I guess, I mean, if, if Saul's men are all right outside. Are they? Well, that, I mean, that, That's would, the question. <laughs> I mean, if, if, I mean, I assume they wouldn't be too far removed because if you're supposed to protect the king, you probably wouldn't be getting too far away from him. Yeah. Yeah. And so there might have been a noisy enough camp outside. Well, I think he might some... have just thought it was his men echoing through there. Well, and I also think there's some distance. I mean, there, there's probably, like you said, some overlap because of the conversation that happens between David and Saul after this. Because I would think that Saul's men, if they heard David, unless they just didn't want to, would have gone after him too. Sure. So we, you, you, trying to envision this, and it's, there's some tricky parts, and you know, some of it you just have to chalk up to. Maybe God just protected David, and no, we that's always feasible. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, 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 when all else fails. Uh, so, verse four, and the men of David said, "Here is the day which the Lord said to you: Behold, I will give you your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you." So, every commentator has the same question: Where was this prophesied? Who prophesied it? And is it really meant to be applied here? Because there's no record of it. We, we, we don't have any mention of this particular prophecy anywhere in Scripture. Sure. And decrees from the masses are rarely right. Anytime you've got a crowd of people demanding that, God, that the leadership does something that they believe God has commanded them to do, it's almost always wrong. Um, we can go back to the golden calf. We can look at Gideon trying to proclaim him king. We can also look in Jesus' time, give us Barabbas, uh, and right. know, several places. So, and I think that's something we as Christians need to keep in mind, even for our own political landscape today. And I'm not going to say which way that should go because y- y'all need to work that out. But when the masses demand something, almost every single time it's the wrong choice. Right. But the last phrase, notice it, it says, you shall do to him as it shall, see, shall seem good to you. I wanted to smack some translators here because this is a bad, bad translation. Is it do what's right in your own eyes? Bingo. <laughs> so all those other connections back, back to the to, book Judges, yeah. this puts it right there on the nose. You cannot miss it. You're supposed to grab hold of that and go, yes, this is the question I need to ask. But because translators weren't being consistent, we miss it. We aren't going Hmm. to see it. And so we want to go back. We want to ask that question. And we want to make sure that the the connections are crystal clear. But it also sets up a great contrast with Saul. Because remember in chapter 23, verse 29, the Ziphites, the masses who came to Saul, and they said to, to Saul that he should do all according to your heart's desire. 
Now, those two phrases, hang on to them. They're going to become important here in a minute. Gotcha. But, you know, the masses tell, try to direct Saul, and they try to direct David. And, of course, David's going to make a different decision than Saul did, which is exactly what we want. So, verse 4b, then David arose and stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Verse 5, and afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. So David gets advice from his men, you know, go kill Saul. God has done this. Mm-hmm. This might also be a good indication that when something seems too easy, it may not always be God at work to further your own agenda. Just my, you know, two cents. So it says, we are rose. We're not told what his intent is. We, you know, we, we're just left to imagine him creeping up on Saul through the rocks, trying not to step on the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And the men watching and the men anticipating that David is going to, to kill the enemy and David's going to take power and now they're all going to be elevated. And then he cuts off the corner of the robe and you can almost hear the men groan. I mean, this is not what they wanted. And this is not what they were hoping for. But Now, I, I do find it interesting because uh, Luke asked the question in his book. We're talking about this book way more than I expected today. <laughs> um, but he asked the question, like, how close was David to Saul? Mm-hmm. And it, and I, I tend to think it would make more sense if Saul had like hung his robe up somewhere, like you take your coat off before you go to the restroom. I you do, know. yeah. So uh, <laughs> that 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 would make more sense to me than anything else. It, it actually does, and you got to remember that to cover the feet is a euphemism. It, mm. it, it's not a literal description of what happened. And so when the rabbis read it literally, they may actually be doing us a disservice there because, you know, we've got lots of euphemisms that we did not explore and we are not going to explore um, for, for this particular act. So the idea of, you know, hanging it over a rock, uh, you know, hanging it off of an outcropping absolutely makes 100% more sense than I think than if Saul was actually still wearing it. And besides, who wants to get to clo- that close to anyone during that time anyway. Right, yeah. So, um, but almost immediately, David's heart is struck. And it's despite the fact that, uh, that he'd shown mercy and compassion because he hadn't done what the men had, had wanted him to do, he, he says there's a reason. He, he tells his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. So if you notice in your Bible there, it's a good time to just remind people, uh, that I should do this thing to my Lord, little letters, to the Lord's anointed, capital letters. Uh, so again, that, that name of Yahweh is present there, and the, the translators are going to, to denote that. So verse 7, so David persuaded his men with these words, and, they did, and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. So first of all, clothes play a huge, huge role in the book of Samuel, if you haven't picked that up yet already. Uh, we've got Hannah making Samuel's clothes, uh, kind of declaring and demonstrating his destiny by making him the linen ephod, like the priest uh, wore even when he was a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, Saul attempting to give David his armor, which didn't fit. And then Jonathan giving David his clothes in the covenant ceremony. Mm-hmm. And na- then Saul being stripped naked before Samuel whenever he went to go to go prophesy. But the most important one of these episodes for us is to go back to chapter 15. And remember, Saul had fought um, and saved King Agag, and Saul had, Samuel had confronted Saul. And as Samuel's turning to leave, Saul grabs Samuel's robe, and he tears the corner off from it. And Samuel jumps on this, and he, he uses this as a, a teaching moment. It's a recurring gag is what we have here. Pretty much. And, you know, Samuel, remember what he tells Saul? The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. It's more of a theme than a gag. Yeah, Sorry. yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, because we're going to pick it up. It even comes up in the New Testament. So what Samuel's saying, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given, to your, given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So the, this is something that we're seeing, like you said, reoccurring, and we're supposed to pay attention to it. So... Another problem with this, with the translation, I'm going to bring this up because it does impact how we read it. In 1527, the ESV has the skirt of his robe. Okay. So whatever that is. Uh, The 
in 24.5, they've put the corner of his robe. Well, both times the word there is kanaf, which is the corner of the robe. That's the same corner that Boaz spread over uh, Ruth. It's also going to be the same corner of the robe that we're going to find later on in the Gospels. And it's significant that we keep the terms the same, consistency. Um, so I, I'm really been tearing my hair out over this because I keep finding these inconsistencies that don't let us follow the thread through. Right. And I, I want us to be able to do that. But um, we're supposed to connect these two episodes together. This is a confirmation that Samuel's prophecy about, about Saul will be fulfilled. I mean, it has been fulfilled in the metaphor and in the imagery. So mm-hmm. symbolically, it's, it's happened. David has the corner of the robe. It's been torn from Saul. But because the symbolism has been fulfilled, we can expect the literal event to be fulfilled too. And it's even more significant because if you look at the corner of a robe in Jewish customs, this is where you have the tassels. Mm-hmm. The tassels are supposed to be sewn onto the corner. It's talked about in Numbers 15, verses 37 through 41. I'm just going to read verse 39. It says, And it shall be a tassel for you to look and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which, are inclined, which you are inclined to whore after. So David, his men said, Do what's right in your eyes. Mm-hmm. Saul, his men said, do what's, you know, do what's in your heart. Mm-hmm. And so here these tassels are supposed to be re- a reminder, a visible you know, prompt. You cannot do this. When your eyes and your heart tell you to do something and it's against these commandments, you need to stop. Sure. And so the, by removing these tassels, David was actually making the robe unfit to wear. And he was saying, because the robe is, you know, there's this picture, not that David was saying it, but there's this picture because Saul's robe is unfit to wear. And it's been taken away from him because he didn't remember the commandments. Saul was unfit to be king. And see, my question on that is, um, is, is David removing that because he's saying you're because Saul was unfit to be king. See, I was thinking it was going the other way that because Saul had become unfit to be king, that David was saying, I'm going, I'm going to take it away. There could be that element to it. And that's the beautiful thing about symbols. There there's a multiplicity of, of application within each symbol. And so, you know, Saul obviously was still wearing the robe when he sinned. So he had not honored what the robe represented. Right. And so So you're not paying attention to this anyway. You don't need it. Yeah. 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 You don't don't need these. Yeah. And, and so it becomes so much more than just a a gotcha that we so often hear it presented as, and I could have killed you. It it becomes very meaningful, especially when you go back, you connect it back to chapter 15. But it also, I, I, this is my thought, because like I said, it does reoccur in the gospels. Remember with a woman with the issue of blood mm-hmm. yep. and she reaches out and I, I, this struck me when she grabs the corner of Jesus robe, it doesn't tear. Right. Evidently the, the tearing was not, it was a problem. I mean, Saul just grabs Samuel and it tears. David cuts. Okay. That's a little bit more of a, a, a of a deliberate act, mm-hmm. but the, the, the tassels that were on Jesus robe remained intact. He is the true king, and he is faithful and able to fulfill the Torah. Right. So I, I thought that was a kind of a, an interesting picture. I didn't see anyone else who said that, so take it for what it's worth. That's my observation, but it kind of made me excited to think about. And the, the other thing I think we overlook is the fact that when David, when he grabs these tassels in this corner to cut it off, what's he looking at? He's looking at the, the representation of the Torah. Mm-hmm. He's remembering what it means. And he is, um, he, he's having to look at the fact that he is not supposed to defy the Torah himself. He, matter of fact, in Exodus, and I think I accidentally left, let my uh, reference number go. In Exodus, we're told you, you don't rebel against the leadership God's installed. Sure. And so when David begins to discuss this with the men, and he's, you know, the, he uses the phrase, the Lord's anointed. Now, before this, 
The anointed had only been mentioned in the book of Leviticus. Only priests and objects going in the temple were anointed. So in Leviticus 4, 3 through 5, the sin of an anointed priest brings sin on all the people. Mm-hmm. And so it requires a special sacrifice. In Leviticus 4.16, it's used to describe the priest who brings the sacrifice for the nation when, when the nation sins intentionally, so for the whole nation. So you kind of, you're getting that idea that the anointed serves the entire nation, and they also have the ability to pollute the entire nation. And um, then it's found in Leviticus 6.22 to describe the priest who shall give um, the grain offering. Now, these are like pretty much the very few handfuls of times we find anointed prior to Hannah. And it's not until Hannah from Leviticus to Hannah that we hear this phrase again. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty big stretch. And we, we find that David's idea of God's anointed is tied up with supernatural protection and provision. And and if you want proof of that, just go look up the, the times that the word anointed is used in the Psalms. And I didn't take time to go through any of them because I think most of us are familiar enough to know that anointed shows up a lot. Sure. And so a specific psalm to look at would be Psalms 89. And David actually uses the word here as his basis to appeal to God for mercy and protection. He, I am your anointed, so, so I should be able to enjoy that. And so in this moment with Saul, it seems like it clicks into place because David's saying, hey, wait a minute. This is God's anointed, and he begins to articulate the shift of what that means. And, you know, Hannah announced it, but David is going to, to flesh it out in the Psalms. And now the anointed has to encompass not only the priest who can be polluted by the nation, but also can pollute the nation. Mm-hmm. And he unites these because they're selected by God for a specific purpose. Right. Now, this is not, this is not salvation. This is the commissioning for a specific task. And this is a role that cannot be renounced, but it can be unfulfilled by the chosen, as we've seen with with Saul. Saul was chosen. Saul was was appointed king. He was anointed king. And he, he forgets that he has an obligation. And he takes this, this idea of anointed so often, you know, we present it as this idea of privilege this idea of prestige and, and David is saying he's realizing it's a position of responsibility more mm-hmm. than anything. And this is kind of a watershed moment for David. You can see him beginning to click all these pieces in place. It is not about being able to be king and Lord over everyone. It, it's about representing God as he walks and serves as a king. Yep. And He's also realizing another thing that divine appointment does not abrogate human responsibility. Right. Because Saul, he he could have been the king that Israel wanted. He could have stepped into that role. He had that choice. He never does. And he he realizes that he's equally guilty of <laughs> of violating the Torah like Saul was because and this is the verse I was uh, thought I had already let go of. It was Exodus twenty two twenty eight. He says, "You shall not re- you shall not revile God or curse the ruler of your people." So, rebellious attitudes towards leadership they they always end badly, right? And we can go back to Numbers twelve, where Miriam and Aaron they they criticized Moses because Moses had married the Cushite woman, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you know, they're both recognized leaders of Israel alongside of Moses and, and put on the same footing. Don't believe me? Go read Micah 6.4. I know a lot of people find it crazy that Miriam is not just like, you know, making sandwiches for the boys. She's an actual leader. Numbers 16, 1 through 35, we got Korah's Rebellion, where a group of priests, they rise up against Moses and Aaron. And the message of the Torah is clear. When God appoints leadership, and they seem to deserve correction. When the masses cry out and say, you're messing it up, you're not doing the right thing, um, they're still protected by God. Right. The masses are rarely correct. And Saul has been undeniably, un- undeniably chosen by God. We, we saw that when Samuel called him, and we, we forget that as he left Samuel's house, so many of these great signs accompanied the call. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, I know it seems like it was like way back when, because I don't even know how many months ago that we talked about that, but this is still the same guy. He, he's experienced God in, in crazy way. And so by symbolically attacking Saul's kingship, by cutting even the corner of the robe, David realizes that he himself is in violation of the Torah. So even though it seemed like God had made this great opportunity, David understands opportunity does not necessarily mean license to do whatever you want to do. And now he's having to, um, he, he's having to figure out how to reconcile who he is, what's been modeled for him, what's been presented in history, and who he should be in this brand new role as king that Saul first inhabits and he is going to inhabit. And what does that look like? And the rabbis even claim that there was a punishment for David for doing this, that as he grew and grew older, he couldn't even get warmth from his clothes. And so this is, and that was for the re, the reasoning that happened. Again, we love the rabbis and what they pay attention to. I don't know if that was necessarily it. Um, that's just one of the things that happens with the human body as it grows older. But um, David's response to his men in the ESV, it says that he persuades them. The Hebrew word is based on a word for tear. So we were, the writer is still being very artful and we lose that in the English. This idea of tearing it is still coming across. And, you know, we still have that, that, terminology in in english you know he tore into his men mm-hmm. you know, you tear into somebody to to let them know that you're displeased with what they're saying or what they're doing and so verse eight afterwards david arose and went out of the cave and he called after saul my lord my king and when saul looked behind him david bowed to the earth and paid homage now the language here is very reminiscent of Jacob and Esau, and we've talked about this before, how Jacob, you know, he goes out to Esau, he bows to, the, to Esau, he, he says, my Lord, and several times calls Esau his Lord. And we're, we're seeing that connection made. Now, there's a part of me, I want to draw a connection to the Akeda or, or the, the binding of Isaac. Okay. Because... In you know, Genesis 22, uh, verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked behind him, just like Saul did. And what's behind him is the ram, the replacement for Isaac. And so when Saul looks behind him, there's David, the replacement hmm. for Saul. That's my thoughts. I, I, I didn't, couldn't get more of a connection than that. So take that for what it's worth. Um, I, I want there to be a really good connection, and I, I just didn't have either the, the insight or the knowledge to, to make it a better yeah. connection. Yeah, and you didn't find any resources on it anywhere? Nobody else was making that connection, and I was kind of shocked because uh, I did expect it because there's very few times that you get this look behind kind of uh, sure. metaphor, and, and the replacement idea is very in keeping with, with Samuel. Yeah. So... um. Verse 9, David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of your men who say, Behold, David seeks you harm? Verse 10, Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. So David contrasts his his response to the men with Saul's response to the men. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a very... On the nose contrast, you can see how both men had faced the same situation with the people that that follows. And then David explains his reasoning. Saul is God's anointed, and therefore Saul shouldn't have anything to fear from David. Right. But maybe from David's men, just just not Saul himself. And so there's there's a little bit of a, you know, you need to watch yourself without being you need to watch yourself. Sure. And there's a little hook in there. Now, how much you of that hook you see uh, really kind of depends on how you view David. And I think our, our views of David are really going to shift over the next few chapters because, you know, before he's been the guy who soothed Saul during troubled times. Hmm. He's been the guy who, who killed the giant. We've got no reason to think anything really bad about him. We've, we started to have some questionable activity at Nob. We've got some 
things going on that they're kind of making us wonder about how he treats women. But now we're going to get into these conversations with David. They're going to reveal more of his heart. And so we see that he's not as perfect as we might have wanted him to be. So well, who is <laughs> right? I know one. So, um, but verse 11, see my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and I did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt me and my, uh, you hunt my life to take it. So commenters are really, commentators are really divided on how to read this. Okay. Um, is David genuinely showing affection and respect for Saul as he, he says this? Or, you know, he calls Saul my father. Is, is that an affectionate, respectful term? Or is it just, yeah, he's my father-in-law, so I'm going to call him father. That's not uncommon. Um, is David being political here? How, how, how sincere are his, his signs of affection? Now, I lean to option three, and my reason for that isn't going to be apparent until we get to the next chapter. So, and I don't want to give that away because it's really interesting to see how the future chapter influences uh, what we're reading here. But David offers proof of his loyalty. See the corner of your robe in my hand. And yeah, David, yeah, he, he regrets the action, but it's done. So he's still going to use it. And he, he's not going to let that chance slip, him by, slip by him. Verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Now, may the Lord judge between me and you. This is an exact quote from Genesis 16, 5. And that's where Abraham goes to, or sorry, Sarah goes to Abraham. And she's talking about the presence of Hagar in the house. Now, Sarah was the one who, who suggested it. And she suggested it as a kindness and kind of compassionate act towards her husband. So that there could be, um, there could be an heir, but it also demonstrated her lack of faith. But Abraham, as the man and the head of the household in the system, he's the one who agreed to it. So mm -hmm. Sarah says, you know, God needs to judge between the two of us. Who and she's not talking about actions at that point. She's talking about motive. Why are you doing this? And remember, for a long time, Abraham, as far as he was concerned, Ishmael was the son. Ishmael was the child of promise. Right. And Sarah wasn't really seen as the wife. And so what Sarah is asking to be judged there is, what's the condition of your heart? What was your motivation for doing this? Or was it not motivation? Was it motives? Which those two words, you know, one has a positive connotation in English, one has a negative. But um, for me, I, I don't see this eloquent plea for reconciliation, which I saw several commentators say, oh, this is David saying, oh, let's, let's make amends. Let's, let's work this out. I don't get that. It's, I mean, let the Lord avenge me against you. That doesn't seem like, uh, let's, let's work this out. Right. That's more of a, that's scary coming from David. And yeah, is that translation, like, is that pretty dead on? I mean, I know I've heard that, um, the, you know, in a lot of stuff, but I'm just curious if it's more like, if there's a problem, let, let God judge it. Let's not fight about it. it, it I mean, you know, I, I could see that being a reading of that, but I don't know if that's accurate. I fell down on that. I should have actually, and I didn't even bring my phone in here with, with me today. I should have looked that up because it would be interesting to see, because it, when we get to the next chapter, there's a point where the, the translators do, um, uh, the ESV chooses to use salvation and other translators use avenge. Hmm. So I, that would be something. Let me look that up. Because, yeah, yeah, I'm just curious about that because I do know, you know, a lot of our translations are colored by kind of some, you know, some Western understandings and some very modern understandings of how we've already interpreted script, the previous English scriptures and then we read them back onto, and, you know, and I know the translators do the best they can, but everyone has a tradition. Everyone mm -hmm. has a background they come from. We've got our but, filters. But there has been plenty of places where I have seen where, you know, the, the JPS is very different. Um, mm -hmm. And I'll, uh, maybe I'll look up, which verse was that? I'm looking up here in the um, JPS. That was verse 12. Verse 12. Because, you know, we, we see some places where there was, 
you know, maybe there's some doctrine that someone had gotten from a tradition that mm -hmm. has been put right in the translation. Yeah. And, and usually, and I think we need to give the caveat with that because those, those biases, when they're put into the translation that way, they're not done because somebody takes a word that is completely unrelated and inserts it into the scripture. They just choose a different synonym than the one that might give it a little different flavor. And so this is why we have to, to watch what synonyms we use. Yeah. It says, may the Lord take, it's his vengeance in this one. Okay. So, so, and usually, you know, when you start having translations really agree. Yeah. Then, then it's, it's uh, yeah. So it may be in there. I'm just wondering if it might've been some more of an idiomatic use of vengeance of like, let God mm -hmm. sort it out. If, if there is really, right. You know, an issue. We'll have to, I'll have to look that up. Cause, cause then David says, you know, my hand's not going to, be against you. It's kind of like, look, I'm not here to, to settle the score. That's for God is kind of what it sounds like to me. Yeah. Well, but you know, but here's the thing. When David asked for vengeance against his enemies in the Psalms, they pack a punch. They generally do. <laughs> so, so, you know, the, it, it's to me, when I read this, I don't get kind of an innocuous kind of reading from it. I get very much you better be afraid because God's going to be the one taking care of sure. it, not me. Yeah, and there definitely could be that bit of it too. And, and I wouldn't, I'm not, I wouldn't rule that reading out at all. Yeah. I, I think a lot of times what happens is we wind up with these, um, you know, David's the golden boy. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and so often we have this tendency to, to really give him the benefit of the doubt, uh, even when there's no reason to give him the benefit of the doubt. I mean, we, we see that with the way people have handled the story of David and Bathsheba. I mean, over and over again, she was this wanton seductress, uh, according to a lot of people, where this text never ever says that. Right. And so we, we want... And she wasn't supposed to be on her roof. The where text was, never says, says that, that either. either. Right? And her own roof. <laughs> her anyway. roof. Uh, yeah. Well, but we're going to get into all that because that's going to be so much fun. But yeah, it, and so this, this, this language here, in, in my views, like I said, from what I came from with, with the Psalms backing up, I feel like David's really kind of laying it out for Saul. Dude, you're in trouble, but it's not me. Mm -hmm. It's not me. So he continues, verse 13. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. So first off, technically, this isn't a proverb. So for all you geeky people, uh, we, we think what David did, and I say we because most of the commentators agree that David basically took the moral of a proverb that he and Saul would have both known, mm -hmm. and he just recounts the moral of it. He doesn't give you that that formal structure of a proverb. Yeah. So well, it's like if we would say so instead he wins the race, as opposed to like reciting all of Aesop's fable or something. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's the thing. They had their own culture, their own context, and they didn't need a lot of um, explanation for what the idioms of their day meant. So um, most of the commentators, again, they go with the idea David is declaring his innocence. He's saying, you know, I, I can't do anything wicked because I am not wicked. You know, if I was wicked, then I might be able to do something wicked. But I think David's words kind of are double-edged. It, it, definitely, yes, I can't do anything wicked because I'm not wicked. You, on the other hand, you've done some pretty wicked stuff. So what does that say about you? And Again, David the politician is what I'm seeing here. Let's yeah really play with the words and let's make sure that um, that we put the most punch in possible because both readings are completely legitimate. And you know you've got to look at at what David has set up in the speech. He he's basically said, "Hey, look, I don't listen to slander. You do, and I'm not trying to kill you. You're trying to kill me." Mm -hmm. Saul's vengeance, um, you know, he, he's seeking it. He's plotting for David. David isn't seeking God's vengeance. And so David's actions are not wicked. Saul's are. And the whole speech, it, even though he never directly addresses what Saul's crimes are, he still made it very clear, this is where you've messed up, which is exactly how, remember, go back to um, the interaction between Saul and David before Goliath. Mm -hmm. Where you've got this this conversation where David very tactfully says, "Let no man's heart fail," and he never addresses what Saul does directly. 
even though he is addressing the condition of Saul's heart specifically. So David, he knows the right way to talk that is proper, but he also knows the way that's still going to make his point. And you know, David is just the master of words. Mm-hmm. And I will point out too, one of the things that we don't find in this speech, he never asked for God to have mercy on Saul. So mm-hmm. that's another reason why I think that this is a speech that's really asking for God to step in and make things right. So he concludes his argument after he who has, has the king of after who has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore judge and give sentence between me and you and see it to and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So David flat out insults Saul here. I mean, I don't see anything any way around it. You know, why are you wasting your time? Mm-hmm. Why are you acting like a fool? Does a real king mess with these sorts of things? If if you were a real king, why are why would you even bother coming after a runaway and the living in the caves of the Engedi? <laughs> and David knows the most effective way to get Saul's attention is to say, "Hey, you're hurting your image." Right. We've already established this is one of the primary things that that drives Saul. He wants to look good. Mm-hmm. And David is confronting him with the truth. You are not looking good right now because you have messed up. So he, he really places himself at odds. And it's the thing is, his words make you see the contrast. And you have to think that if Saul's camp was nearby and the men could hear this, what's going through their heads? What's David feeding into their psyche and how they view Saul and how they view David? Because remember, all those men, those 3,000 men who were just the, the tip of the iceberg of Saul's army, they can either be a problem for David mm-hmm. or they can be a solution for David. And he really needs to drive a wedge between Saul and his men. And so when David's speaking this, he is putting that, that contrast there, judge and give sentence between me and you. There can only be one, one who's vindicated. And both of them can't be right. And it's not Saul. And David's making sure everyone knows that. And the evidence of God's judgment in David's favor is the fact that David has the corner of the robe. When he says, see what I've got. This isn't just a piece of material. This isn't just part of your jacket. This is the fulfillment of a prophecy. Mm -hmm. This is a direct confirmation that everything Samuel has said about you is true. And David, you know, he doesn't even give a name for what the, what the sentence should be because it doesn't matter. Um, the, the, the sentence, we already know what it can be. Only one true king can live. Right. We, we can't have, I mean, this is Highlander all over again. There can be only one. And so. I think this one came first. Well, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like five. We, we cannot accept the fictional timeline of Highlander. Dad, gammit. Okay. <laughs> Darn. No. <laughs> yeah, like five thoughts went through my head, and I'm like, I don't know if I got time to summarize it, but you did it. So, a couple more things we'll squeeze in here um, right quick. So, verse 16 says, As soon as David finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is it your voice, David, my son? And David and Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And so, so. For the first time since Saul has begun to, to pursue David back from Rosh Kodesh, um, Saul is addressing David as David. As a matter of fact, we only have a handful of times, just a couple of times that during this whole pursuit, Saul has even said the name David. Usually it's that son of Jesse. But here he, he calls David by name. He, he's my son. And we, we seem to have this moment where Saul remembers he loved David. He had a connection with David. And there's, there's a hint of something else going on here because this really, really echoes Genesis 27, 18. And this is when Jacob goes into uh, to Isaac and he's got the furs on and Jacob, uh, Isaac says, who are you, my son? And even though it's not the exact same words, mm-hmm. it's the same kind of Is that your theme. voice? Yeah. Yeah. Is that your voice? Who is it? And we've already had this, this connection between Jacob and David and Saul and Esau. 
but now the writer is recasting Saul as as Isaac, and when he's recasting David uh, Saul as Isaac, it's blind Isaac. It's the Isaac who can't see. He doesn't understand. This has been Saul all the way along. He can't see. He doesn't understand. He doesn't know who he's supposed to be as a king. Mm-hmm. He's always overstepping his bounds. And if you remember our contrast when we talked about Jacob and Esau, the major significance between the two brothers is Esau didn't have a vision. Mm-hmm. He wanted to get what he wanted right now. He didn't care what rules it broke. He didn't care what future he might be throwing away. He wanted to be fed. He wanted to be happy in this moment, in this time, where Jacob had a vision. He's the, it's the reason he could go and work seven years for Rachel. It's the reason why he could go back to Bethel. He had the ability to anticipate a future that was larger than himself. Right. And so we're being reminded that Saul, he, he's just as blind as the other son that, that God had rejected for not having a, a vision. And so it's a good reminder to us that we need to have a vision as believers. And that's so important. We, I find that when I talk to people who are struggling with their Christian identity, trying to understand who we are as believers, almost invariably, the one thing they're missing, they don't have a vision. Right. And, you know, you go to Pro, uh, Proverbs and we're told that where there is no vision, people cast off restraint. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. when people start doing things like Saul did. They start overstepping those boundaries and they start really, um, they get into sin. I mean, there's just no other way to say it. And David, this is one of the things he gets about being king. The, the, being the king isn't about self-promotion. It's not about luxury. It's not about gain. It really is about manifesting God's activity and presence on this earth. And, you know, yes, he's going to mess up. But when you look at the heart of what David wants to accomplish with his kingship, and we haven't gotten there yet, but we, I think most of us know the one thing David wanted to do above everything else was build, build a the temple. temple. Yep. And so that one thing is what makes him worth being a king. Saul's been a king this entire time. Why hasn't he, why hasn't he addressed that the Ark of the Covenant is not where it belongs? Right. Why hasn't he established a sacred place and brought the priest in to, to do all the right things, re- returned you know the, the Ark to the place where the priest can look over it? He doesn't care. He's never even spoken of it. Right. So... We, we find this really interesting picture and contrast with the two of them that the writer of Samuel uses these themes from Genesis. Now, they're not duplications, and they aren't exact replicas, but he pulls off these themes from Genesis mm-hmm. to reveal who this person is. And I think this is something that we as believers need to, to grasp and hold on to. We need to be asking ourselves, when we say we're Christians, Are we saying it so that we get a discount at the store? Are we saying it so that we can have some prestige? Or are we saying it because we really want to create a place in our own lives that manifests God's presence and activity on this earth? And I think Saul and David shows us the importance of of just how damaging having the wrong mindset can be. And having the right mindset doesn't save you from making mistakes. but we can still accomplish it. We can at least lay the foundation for it to be accomplished. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's probably a pretty good spot to, to call it an episode. Yeah. And yeah. We'll, we'll finish up with this conversation next week, and then we'll get into uh, David and Naval and Abigail. And Yeah, I'm curious about that. I'm, uh, you seemed really excited about it, so I'm hoping, it, <laughs> <I am. laughs> I'm hoping it's as good as you let on. Well, I, I'll, I'll say this. Night before last, before I, I got here yesterday, I was like in the middle of it. And I'm like, well, I'm just going to do a few more verses, just a few more verses. And finally, about one o'clock at night, I realized if I don't just quit, uh, I'm not going to be fit to record. So I mean, sure. because I just wanted to keep going because it, it's a fascinating story. And so I hope everybody joins us for that one, because yeah. there's so much about women and, and who women can be and men. She is just a match for David in a way that none of his other wives are. So we're actually probably going to spend at least, I want to say we're going to spend two weeks just on her alone. Okay. Well, cool. Well, we will try to get that going. But in the meantime, everyone, uh, 
thank you for joining us. Hope you had a fun time listening to all this. It was a kind of a wacky show, but you know, we, we pulled it back together, I think in the end. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> so. Anyway, if you want to be part of this conversation, um, be sure to hit us up on Raven Creek SC on all the social media and ravencreeksc.com where you can find everything mm-hmm. we do, including other shows such as Change My Mind with uh, the aforementioned Luke T. Harrington, <laughs> uh, Commentarians, uh, mainly hosted by Joe Zaragoza these days. Sometimes Emily and I still jump in there, mainly Emily. Um, I'm hoping to get back in there soon, but yeah. I, uh, it's been a little crazy around here with the moving and everything. Anyway, but... Join us uh, online and next week, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes, or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us next week.